that God's primary purpose here on earth is not to make us happy, but to make us Christ-like. And in the process of making us more and more Christ-like, He will often refine us and shape us and fashion us, and He often uses disappointment and broken dreams to do that. And in the process, opens up a better way for us. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning we are continuing our series of studies in the New Testament book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, can you flick all the way to the back and you'll find Revelation there and you'll find it on page 1916, 1916 of the church Bible. Today we're coming to Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Philadelphia from verses 7 through to verse 13. Many of you will know that over these last few weeks together, we have been steadily working our way through the churches mentioned in Revelation, and so we come to the church in Philadelphia this morning. Revelation 3 at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, and what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep from you the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Now, some of you will be aware that over these last six or seven weeks as we have been making our way through Revelation, in those early days we were tempted to hold on to the belief that the book of Revelation is in fact a bewildering, incomprehensible, opaque book packed with complex imagery, symbolism, apocalyptic writing, and therefore it's kind of easier just to ignore it. But I suspect these last six or seven weeks together, we've discovered something else. That as we journey further and further into the book of Revelation, as we explore it on a Sunday morning and begin to drill down deeper and deeper, the book is not only becoming more accessible to us, 
but we are warming up to many of the biblical principles that we find contained in its pages. And far from being a book that is opaque and incomprehensible, in fact, we've discovered that God not only was speaking to the churches in Ephesus and Sardis and Thyatira and Pergamum and today in Philadelphia, but He's also been speaking to us as well. And that's one of the spectacular experiences when we open up the Scripture. Of course, it was written for these churches towards the end of the first century, around the year 96 AD, written by the Apostle John, but it is of equal application for us today. Now, the historical and social context may differ, but there are many of the biblical principles that we can take and apply right here. In fact, last Sunday morning, and forgive me for this, I don't want us to go back through all we discovered last week. But when we looked at the church of Sardis, we saw a typical pattern of these letters. Jesus writes in the early moments of the letter to encourage the congregation, and then he says, but I have this against you. And the church of Philadelphia is an exception to that. There are five churches in which he does exactly that, but here his writing is upbeat, optimistic. He's encouraging and warm in his tone, and he's drawing in this congregation who feel themselves a little insignificant. He's drawing them further and further into the plans of God and encouraging and strengthening them. And that's the overall tone of the letter. Back in Sardis, he said to them last week, you have a reputation for being alive, but are in fact dead. And those were stark and arresting words. And we're about to see in Laodicea next Sunday, he does that again and uses very strong language for the church at Laodicea. But here in Philadelphia, he's warm, engaging, and encouraging them. And a similar pattern arises when we notice that over these last few weeks, and he does it again this morning, he has been seeking to encourage the church to seek after spiritual excellence, spiritual excellence, and then engage the society and culture in which they live. He's been seeking to nourish and nurture a secure spiritual home for his readers, and he's calling them to be that place for the people of Philadelphia. So having said that, by way of introduction, let's go back to the first century church in Philadelphia. Now, we're tempted, of course, to think of Philadelphia as being in Pennsylvania. And, of course, uh, the ancient church was brought about around the year 158 BC or thereabouts. It was founded and established by two brothers who had a real brotherly love and deep affection for one another, hence the city of brotherly love. And, of course, that was carried over to uh, Pennsylvania as well. And so that's a little of the background. It had an important location. It was the gateway, if you're looking at a map, the Aegean Sea is here. Then you have the churches at Ephesus and Thyatira and Smyrna and Pergamum. It was inland, and it was the major trade route going east. We've seen that through a couple of the other cities. They would come through a couple of the other cities before they get to Philadelphia, and then they were moving very quickly into Asia. And so it was strategically placed. It's not a wealthy city. It was, had a good location. 
It was known as the center for wine distribution in that area, had a little import-export uh, trade going on. The church, the town itself, about 150,000 people, not large, not known for great architecture, uh, some temples, of course, to worship Greek and Roman gods, and also the emperor, Roman emperor as well. But for the most part, folks in Philadelphia thought themselves as fairly insignificant, not much to offer. And that was the case with the church as well, a small church who believed themselves to be insignificant. Now, notice how the letter begins. Jesus writing or speaking and John recording writes these words. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. What he is saying is this, he who is holy, he who is true, when he unlocks and opens a door, no one can close that door, and if he closes that door, no one can open it. And he uses the language of holy and true for this reason. He's reminding the folks in Philadelphia who he truly is. God Almighty, who is holy and true. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. He is a man of his word. He is authentic and credible, and what you see and what you hear him say, he is the real deal. That's the language of holy and true. Now, the language of holy, of course, was reflected in our first hymn this morning. Holiness means what? God, in all of His transcendent majesty and glory, is holy. He is utterly different from us, absolutely pure, spotless, without sin or blemish in any way whatsoever. And then, of course, the unlocking of the door speaks towards his providence and his sovereignty and his strength and his eternal purposes and plans and decrees. And all of that is mixed into these opening words. And notice what else he says as he takes them a stage further. He says to them, when he what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And notice he repeats it a second time. He says, I know your deeds. See, look, observe, it's before you. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, let me pause there for a second. And you may be here this morning saying, Richard, I'm with you. I've been following all that you're saying so far and I've grasped that. I've got the historical, the cultural, the sociological background to the church at Philadelphia, ancient Philadelphia. I've got that. But quite honestly, this passage in Revelation causes me major problems. It raises questions in my mind. 
And you may be thinking along those lines because over the last three or four months, your experience has not been the experience of the folks in Philadelphia. And you may well be saying, Richard, actually, the last three or four months have been so difficult for me, not because God has opened a door, but in fact, because He has closed the door, and He has firmly closed it, and I've knocked on the door, I've peeked through the mailbox, I've looked through the window, and the door is firmly closed. Now, if you can identify with that sense of broken promises and disappointed dreams, please hear me when I say this with all of the gentleness and pastoral care I can that when God leads and directs His children in a particular fashion, and then suddenly a door is closed, please understand this, that with some longevity comes perspective. And I suspect in the months and years ahead, you will look back to the pain and difficulty and uncertainty of the last few months and understand this, that God's seeming rejection is little more than His redirection. Because all too often, and millions of Christians down through the centuries will tell you this, that when he closes one door, he inevitably opens another. And all too often, it is better for us. Better for us. But we cannot see it at the time, because we are so wounded and so hurt. Remember the principle, God's seeming rejection often works out to be little more than His redirection. Please remember this, that God's primary purpose here on earth is not to make us happy, but to make us Christ-like. And in the process of making us more and more Christ-like, He will often refine us and shape us and fashion us, and He often uses disappointment and broken dreams to do that. And in the process, opens up a better way for us. And if you are struggling this morning, standing in front of a closed door of broken promises and disappointed dreams, He is not finished with you yet. He is not. Now, the church in Philadelphia were given this incredible opportunity, and here was a door of ministry and opportunity for growth and maturity that no one could close, and God is calling them to move into insurmountable opportunities. Isn't that a great phrase? Insurmountable opportunities. They were in a perfect location. God was at work. But they thought of themselves as 
insignificant. Notice what he says. He says, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And in verse 8, he says to them, I know you. I know your deeds. And see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you kept my word and did not deny my name. And here is a small church in a small city thinking of themselves as insignificant. Ephesus, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum had greater cities, greater wealth, greater influence. Some of them had outstanding libraries in ancient antiquity, stadia that could seat 25 or 30,000 people. And the folks in Philadelphia would look around them and think, they have it together we don't. But that is not how God saw them. He saw them in a very different manner. And he says to them, I know you think of yourself as having little strength. Microdynamism is the language that's used here. You think you don't have much, but in the midst of persecution, in the midst of being marginalized and minimized by the culture and society and the persecution around you because you will not worship Caesar, you have kept my word and my name. You're much stronger than you think. And what he's saying to them is this, and if you're taking notes this morning, please get this down. He is saying this, that you may think of yourselves as instantly forgettable and seemingly insignificant, but hear this. In the economy of God, the limitations of our lives surrender to Him is the very platform He chooses to work from. Let me say it again. In the economy of God, the limitations of our lives surrender to Him, provide for Him the very platform He chooses to work from. So when you're tempted to think you have nothing to offer and you are insignificant, remember His promise to the church at Philadelphia. He delights to take the ordinary and the average and the everyday and the instantly forgettable and the seemingly insignificant and do spectacular things with them. Now, please hear this before we start making our descent this morning, and I need you to get this. That the congregation who are intentional about developing spiritual excellence of making a secure home where God is worshipped in awe and enjoyed, where ministry imperatives are laid out for them, they have clarity of mind, know who they are, know where they're going, a congregation whose dreams are greater than their memories. And when that congregation understand this, the holiness and the power and the grace of God in and through the 
gospel, there is no end to what they can do. And when God lies before them an open door, they are in the midst of the most exciting days yet. And that's the church at Philadelphia. And I cannot help but wonder if that's the church in Greenville as well. I lay before you an open door that no one can shut. Here we are at the heart of a city that's growing and developing quicker than any of us can imagine or could see 15, 10, or 20 years ago. And here we are at the heart of a city seeking to nourish and nurture spiritual excellence in order to engage with the communities and the society, and the culture around us. What an opportunity. And when we understand the power and magnitude and gravitas of the gospel that we touched on last week, we are poised for extraordinary things. And notice then, in closing, what are the things he's making clear to them? Jump down to the end of verse 10 when he says, I have loved you. And then verse 11, hold on to what you have. Hold on to what you have. What does he mean? What are the ministry imperatives before the church at Philadelphia? And are those principles transferable to us for the next five, seven, ten years in first prayers? Please notice what else he says. Verse 9, I know your deeds. Verse 9, or verse 8 rather, I have placed before you. Further on in the verse, I know you have little strength. Verse 9, I will make. Later on, verse 9, I will make again. Verse 10, uh, end of verse 9, I have loved you. Verse 10, I will keep you. Verse uh, 11, hold on to what you have. Now, what is he asking them to hold on to? Well, he's reminding them, I think, and he's challenging them to remember where they have come from. And not only remember where they have come from, but to remember who they are. In other words, he's saying to them, what are the things that define you as a church? What are your core values? And of course, throughout the letter, he's been talking to them and challenging them about spiritual excellence, about nurturing and nourishing a congregation of the people of God who will what? Worship God in all of His holiness and in awe and enjoy Him forever. Hold on to what you have. Hold on to the gospel. Hold on to the grace of God. Remember His forgiveness. Remember His invigorating energy that comes when He touches and transforms our lives. Be the people God is calling you to be. That's what He's saying to them. Now, hold that thought for a second. I'll make one more point, and then we'll wrap it up. Over the last three or four months, I have been absolutely fascinated watching the politics and the presidential elections and the primaries working out. Now, 
because of my past sins, I have watched every debate, and I've tried to listen to every candidate. I've ignored all the telephone calls that come in, but I have tried to listen to all of the debates. Independents, Republican, Democrats, I've been watching the media, and Ruth is entirely fed up with it, and she's so pleased it's all moving to Nevada. But nonetheless, I've been thoroughly engaged in the whole process. And as I've been driving around each week, going to hospitals or visiting folks at home or going to meetings, I've been tuning in to talk radio. And I've discovered that talk radio is a whole new subculture unto itself, and it's there every day. And I'll tune in from time to time, and I'm enjoying and fascinated to listen to the phone calls and uh, the presenters and all of that. And over the last three months, I've been hearing again and again the phrase, American exceptionalism. The first time I heard it, I thought, what did he mean by that? And then I had to ask that question the second and third and fourth time as well, but I think eventually I've got it. And I think there is so much truth right there. And I wanted to take that principle of exceptionalism and ask, can we as a congregation, still early in a new year, moving forward, aim for that principle of exceptionalism? And I think God calls us to exceptionalism, to be exceptional in prayer, to be exceptional in grace, to be exceptional in compassion, to to be exceptional in reaching out, to be exceptional in worship, exceptional in coming to know Him, to be exceptional in maturity and growth and understanding this, that when we rise to the exceptionalism He is calling us Two, when we understand that his seeming rejection becomes redirection, when we grasp and hold on to that biblical truth that we may not get everything we pray for, but we will get everything we have hoped for, then we become exceptional people, exceptional in spiritual excellence, exceptional in engaging our faith with daily living. And we are exceptional people because we have an exceptional God, holy, true, majestic, faithful. That's what the church in Philippi had to hold on to. Over the next few months, you're going to hear us unfold a strategic plan for the next five years. And inside that strategic plan, you see many of these principles unfolding for us again and again and again. And the passage ends with these words, and it's appropriate we do this morning. Those who have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we bring our time to a close, we thank You for Your goodness and Your faithfulness to us. Plant within us an appetite for spiritual excellence. Equip us 
to be ready for cultural engagement as we seek to live our life out day by day. Give within us an appetite for exceptionalism in grace, in love, in compassion, integrity, character, and in spiritual maturity and growth. Father, bless us and encourage us, please. For we ask it in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. First Presbyterian Church will hold its 39th annual Turner Memorial Prayer Breakfast on Thursday, March 3rd. This year's speaker is Cleveland Browns quarterback Connor Shaw, who will speak at 7 a.m. following a full breakfast buffet opening at 6. Tickets are $10 each and are available at the church office Monday through Friday from 8.30 until 5. Tickets will not be sold at the door. For more information, call Lindsey Graham, 